CBD FX's CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBD FX uses only organically grown hemp and all natural ingredients. CBD FX's best-selling line of CBD products features wellness-boosting CBD and legal Delta 9 THC gummies, oil tinctures, capsules, pens, and other products. Visit CBDFX.com today and use code GENIUS to get 25% off site-wide, plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase. The code is GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at cbdfx.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Henrik Defiende, PhD. He's a research group leader and associate professor at University of Copenhagen in the Department of Plant and Environmental Sciences. Uh, we're going to talk about what's called host versus pathogen evolution in insect versus pathogenic fungi. So, Henrik, thanks for coming. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Do you would tell me a bit about your background, and then I want to ask you about your current research. Sure. I'm a biologist by training, and um, I've always actually been fascinated by social insects. So I came a little bit backwards into this interesting field of uh, fungi. And um, during my studies, I stumbled across these fascinating social insects like ants and termites that cultivate fungi for food, sort of uh, fungus-growing termites or fungus-growing ants. And so when I was choosing my different topics for projects, I ended up working a lot with these fungi um, and how they are adapted to living together with insects. Uh, and then uh, as I moved on, I also got quite fascinated by when the fungi are not really sort of a benefit to the insects, but actually also uh, can cause serious diseases and manipulate all these different insects in various ways. So I shifted gears a little bit from the good guys to the bad guys, you could say. What kind of uh, interesting interactions have you observed? In nature, good and bad. What are some examples? I think the most extraordinary examples come across and have uh, worked with are, the, are these fungi that uh, manipulate the behavior of their host. So uh, most famously maybe are the cordyceps fungi that can take over the behavior of ants. And they grow out of their head and they take them over, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And But, but a lot of that, that happens after they're dead. But So first they force them to crawl upwards and, and die in, in certain positions. But I have worked more with a different type of fungus uh, called uh, Entomophthora, which we have. I mean, it occurs many places in the world, but we also have it here in Denmark where I live. Um, and that infects flies, so house flies and hoover flies and other other types of flies. Um, and it's very similar in the sense that it is able to take over the behavior and, and force them to, to crawl upwards and, and die in certain positions. And, and I think that's maybe one of the most extraordinary aspects of the biology of these pathogenic fungi, how they're able to do that. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, have you observed this in the lab or in nature yourself directly, or you just read about it? 
Yeah, I've observed it in the in nature and in places where, where there are a lot of flies, so in the cow stables and stuff like that. But there we usually just see the dead flies when they have been manipulated. But uh, we have, for a long time now, we have had a model system running in the lab where we have this fungus growing inside flies. Then every takes usually from we expose healthy flies to, to these, to the infectious spores of the fungus, then uh, it takes six to seven days. And then we start seeing this manipulation of behavior. And, and then we can observe all sort of aspects of this manipulation in the laboratory and filming it and, and so on. So we have, I've seen it many times and also studied it quite closely, sort of what it does. Bill, what is your current research about? What are some interesting things you're working on? I mean, one thing with this fungus that takes over the behavior is that we're quite interested in for a pathogen that infects insects and, and eventually has to kill the insect in order to continue its transmission, taking six to seven days before it kills its host is in some aspects quite a long period. So what happens in that period we are quite interested in and so how does it affect the behavior and how of the insect it infects i mean maybe not so much as manipulating it but more as a consequence that it's the insect is ill or heavily diseased at this point so some of these flies they can still the females can still lay eggs and the males can still still mate with these females and, and so on so, so in the beginning of the infection it's maybe not so detrimental but then it sort of gradually becomes worse and worse until towards the end they're almost completely eaten up inside from from this fungus so we're interested in and what during this process, what does this uh, have a what does this cause in the host populations? But another line of research where we are maybe more using these pathogenic fungi as a model system, that I'm very interested in host shifts. So when a pathogen that normally only affects one host or a specific species of host, what happens when they sort of find themselves in a new host, uh, sort of under strong selection pressure to adapt to this new host in order to to continue their life cycle. And um, can we understand or, or predict maybe even when such host shifts will occur? And to study that, we are using insect pathogenic fungi and creating artificial host shifts in the laboratory and studying how, how that uh, what happens in, in those cases. So when, what examples are of host shift and when will it occur in the definitive host and the intermediate host? Yeah, so examples of host shifts are of pathogenic fungi are well known and, and especially made from the plant pathogenic fungi where they can uh, jump up to new varieties of crops that cultivate or they can that fungal um, pathogens that naturally infects a certain groups of plants the growing on the edges of a field suddenly are able to jump or shift onto the crop being cultivated and also when people sometimes have tried to develop resistant varieties and so on eventually some of these pathogenic fungi have been found to be able to jump onto these crops and so there are some examples for in that area but from the insect world it's, it's less known and, and maybe it's hard to observe in nature to find that diseased insects is I guess why we haven't sort of observed it or seen that a lot. Oh, so just a hypothesis for now? Or are there examples of it historically? There are examples of it historically. And I mean, the question is that, I mean, the main theory behind it is, of course, that normally pathogen host shifts will happen between hosts that are somewhat related. So it's much more likely that a pathogen that normally infects, say, one species is able to infect the sister species than it is to jump onto something completely new. But still, there are examples in nature where we can see that a pathogen has shifted host from really 
between very wide taxonomic realms. And we're, we're, we're studying one particular case where it looks like pathogenic fungus that normally infects a host plant has jumped or shifted onto now also being able to infect an insect that is a pest on this host plant. So there are examples in nature where we also can have sort of what I would call very wide host shifts from across a very, very broad taxonomic distance. And there sort of the theory, how we understand them is, is less applicable because they probably, I mean, there's a huge element of, of chance events, the evolutionary history of these, I would say. Are the parasites successful when they switch hosts or is there a long acclimation period or, you know, are they hanging on? Yeah. So I think that also, uh, that depends a lot on the particular systems, but you would expect that in many cases, I, the, there's probably a long period where they're just barely hanging on until they can sort of start or have, have adapted to the new host. Um, those cases where that is not, where they are more sort of readily adapted, it's usually because there have been some sort of, could call them pre-adaptations, where they are targeting some traits that are similar between the two hosts. So that could either be a specific receptor or something that they're using, a specific chemical composition of the surface or so on that are similar between the hosts. CBD affects full-spectrum and broad-spectrum CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBDFX is offering our listeners an exclusive 25% off, which I think is very generous, plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase when you use the code GENIUS. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at CBDFX.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. But that leads back to this idea that they are must, that pathogen host shifts are much more likely between related hosts, which share some of these traits that the pathogens can target. But in these wider host shifts, we assume that there is a long period of where they're just barely hanging on. So you're just trying to document more instances of these? understand them? I mean, is it just so rare that it's, is it hard to get any subjects to study? Yeah. I mean, my idea for, the, for our current projects was actually that because it's fairly rare, it, it's tricky to go out and observe it in nature because a host shift, I mean, the very first instances of a host shift would be like finding sort of the first cases where pathogen is sort of starting to infect a new host. Or, I mean, in the recent pandemic, there was this uh, idea of finding patient zero, right? So to where, where it all started. So that is very tricky, especially if we looking at sort of pathogen shifting hosts between insects or something like that. But actually with insects, we can sort of manipulate the, the infection in the laboratory so, so we can actually create artificial host shift and force pathogen onto a new host. Um, and then we can sort of follow what happens at those very crucial initial phases where the pathogen is often only barely hanging on. So in one as some aspects, it's very artificial and very constructed. But on the other hand, it's a really strong selection prayer. And then we can trace back and see whether there are epigenetic or genetic changes in them as they are sort of forced to adapt to these new hosts. Are you able to look at the epigenetics of the, uh, you know, the cordyceps infected ants? Do you have the lab as well? Are you? Yeah, no, that we don't have, have in the lab. And I think that might be a little bit tricky because it's more difficult to keep the host ants. I mean, have big colonies in the lab and keep them healthy. And also the whole infection cycle and production of new spores is a little, I mean, it takes weeks, if not months. And so it might be a sort of a very long experiment. So some of the model systems we work with from the time we expose the host until they die of the infection and the fungus is growing out and producing new spores is uh, quite a bit faster and that allows us to sort of have more generations and instances of, of these uh, infections 
uh, or cycles of infections, you can call them. So I think it wouldn't be that feasible in the cordyceps ancestors, but that's not saying that it couldn't be done. Okay. So what other uh, experimentation are you looking to do? Can you do any field experimentation or does everything have to come into the lab, analyze it? I mean, in this particular case, we, we mostly, uh, I mean, we are only doing it in the laboratory because in order to create these artificial shifts, it requires a bit of tricks and changes of humidity and so on. So in the field, it has, I mean, our field work has more been sort of uh, sampling. So to look at different populations of fungi and seeing whether they, uh, how different they are compared to where they are sampled on certain hosts or areas of the host and so forth. So that's one aspect of it where we are, we're working more in the field. So do you have any hypotheses on what's going on uh, during the infection cycle of cordyceps? Any observations you've been, a- you've been able to make? No, I mean, not not directly from the cordyceps, but uh, from our system with the flies and there's this other fungus that is very similar. We have, I mean, it, it has some very peculiar adaptations to being able to infect these insects. So for instance, they, they're able to, to penetrate the hard outer the cuticle or of the insects, and that's a little bit rare among fungi. It's only in some insect pathogenic fungi that can do that. But once they're inside the fly, they proliferate inside the fly in more like a single cell sort of yeast-like state. So they're individual fungal cells instead of these uh, hyphal threads or that form a mycelium. And these single cells, they, uh, they do not really have any cell walls because the insect immune system it's very well adapted to discovering the, the surface of bacteria, or fungi, or, or anything that would sort of they would encounter. And so by having a sort of a very limited cell wall, the, the immune system doesn't attack them that much, we, we can see. So they are sort of growing in these more irregular shape protoplasts. So they just have thought of the, the membrane that normally would lie underneath the, the cell wall. And so, so that is a very specific adaptation to, to trying to avoid the immune system is, is the current uh, idea. And, and then, of course, when they start to take over the behavior and they have eaten up most of the organs of, of the host and so on, then, then they switch to more threat-like growth, which sort of coincides when they're killing the host. And then they're also uh, enforcing these uh, peculiar behaviors on them. Yeah, no worries. No. What are you able to study in the lab? Does it sound like it's difficult to get some of these systems in there because they're so complex and interrelated? Oh, yeah, to set them up in the lab so that the tricky part of this fly manipulating fungus is that it doesn't grow very well on a pit, in a petri dish or on a normal media. Um, we can cultivate it in a sort of a, a very, in a liquid media that where we are trying to mimic what insect blood looks like, so the insect hemolymph, but it doesn't grow s- super well. It grows slowly, and it and, it, and we can't really do many of the normal manipulations we can do with other fungi. So it is a little bit tricky in that sense, and we need to ensure that we have a constant supply of healthy flies that we can expose to the fungus so we can keep the fungus going in its natural host, uh, these flies. So that is a little bit of a, a tricky part. And then also because manipulation and sporulation of the flies is so timed, so it's always either six or seven days after exposure that we have to sort of come in and collect these cadavers that are shooting out spores and place them over healthy flies. And that is sort of on six, seven day cycles, ir- irrespective of uh, weekends and holidays and natural <laughs> and so on. But so in that aspect, that there is a little bit of, of a challenge to maintain the whole thing. What, what do you think is possible that you can be able to figure out in the next year or two 
you're getting close to the inside. Yeah, I think we hope our aim is to get a little bit, uh, get closer to what happens in these uh, fungal genomes that we have made go through an artificial host shift in the lab. So we are currently sort of trying to deduce all the different changes we are seeing in them. And, and one thing that are quite striking is that already after five to eight passages or so in a new host, we can see quite a big difference in some of their traits. I mean, how virulent they are and, and, and how they grow and so on. And all of that is sort of just from the standing genetic variation of the initial isolate we started from. So that indicates that it's some sort of rewiring of the gene expression and epigenetic uh, machinery and, and, and so on that, that has changed in order for them to, to become so quickly become much better at, at infecting this new host. So uh, we, we want to get closer to see which, which parts of the genome are affected and, and whether we can correlate some of the, the genes in those regions with the mechanism of the virulence and, and also study how they have changed along the different uh, cycles of infection in the new host. So I think that could give us some ideas of what it takes to make these host shifts because we have done it. We have replicated the experiment several times. So we have different examples of these artificial host shifts. In some cases, it has worked well and in other cases, it didn't work that well. And then, then we can compare these and see what changes are required and when what is needed and so on. So I think that we are fairly close to sort of uh, figuring out how, what has happened in those cases at least. Well, very good, Henrik. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they sell? They want to know more. I mean, I maintain a website where I'm trying to sort of have updated lists of what we do and, and where we are engaging with the public and so on. So I think that would really direct people to that. And there they can also find an overview of both our scientific papers and but also uh, public outreach uh, articles or seminars and so on that we have done so though i think maybe that would be my first uh, suggestion okay very good well thank you again for coming on the podcast i appreciate it yeah no thank you very much for the invitation it was fun remember before you go check out cbdfx.com for the best in organic all natural cbd products both for you and your pets boost your wellness today and get 25 percent off your first order, plus get a free CBD bath bomb when you use code GENIUS at checkout. That's code G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at cbdfx.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.